0: What's troubling your father? You seem agitated. I think I broke something. What? My back. What did you say about
1: coming home? I won't
0: be back to the max. That review went viral.
1: What
0: does that mean? It means it got picked up and retweeted everywhere.
2: Welcome to the exciting world of television. A wholly new field for you to begin to learn in. Well spoken, Roger. So, what's the beef here exactly? There is an entire world out there where people fight to be
0: relevant, and you act like it doesn't exist.
2: I'm a rational man who believes in a rational world. Any other way lies madness. Who do you want to be, Mason? What do you want to do? Not quite my tempo. It's all good. No worries. Here we go. Six. I have only another 300 miles left to walk.
0: I'm desperate for it to be over.
2: I'm willing to meet my creator and answer for every shot that I took.
0: Think of our newscast as a screaming woman running down the street with her throat cut. Will
2: somebody wear me to the face? We must march! We must stand up. We must make a massive demonstration of our moral certainty.
1: You don't know if she has friends, you don't know what she does all day, and you don't know your wife's blood type. Enough of you.
2: That's a false conclusion. What is that?
0: It's a gun. Kiss my. Useless machines. me through a dream. Hello, I am Baymax, your personal healthcare companion. What is it? An ark to
3: hold the innocent. And in the creator sends his deluge to wipe out the wicked from this world.
4: Whoa, are we inside my brain right now? It's big. I must be smart. Why don't you just call the police? And send me to jail.
2: Same as you. Just keeping it in house. Three crazy women for five weeks is a
0: lot more than I bargained for. <laughs> Excuse me. The police are here. They asked for you. Tell them I'll be right now.
4: From Tuscaloosa, Alabama, this is Aspect Radio. I'm Corey Kraft. I'm Ben Flanagan, welcome to another episode of Aspect Radio, and on February 12th, 2015, we are finally ready to say goodbye to 2014. The year that just happened. Yes. Well, it's about time. Well, at least we're getting this in before the Oscars. That always makes me feel a little bit better. I feel like we've done this in March before. Yes, if not further into the year. So, Mm. I feel good about it. I feel good too. And while I personally left a couple on the table that I wish I hadn't, I'm sure that you covered way more ground than I did anyway, and perhaps. Feel a little bit better about all the films that you've seen and feel good about making a top 10. It's always hard for both of us to whittle the long list of movies that we've seen from the previous year down to 10. It's painful to do. It's punishing to the films that don't make the cut and to us for having to go through that grueling process. There were
3: some painful eliminations here. Yeah, Things you know. That it hurt to leave off.
4: I was making mine earlier today and. As I was just going right, right on through it and making all sorts of progress, I realized that not on the list was one that belonged directly in the middle, and I just said out loud, S-t. I forgot that. And so it just screwed everything up, but that's my problem. It happens, though. It
3: really does. I mean, at least for my list, the top half of it was pretty set in stone, feeling pretty comfortable about that. It's just filling it in. You know, six through ten, what are you going to include? The reality is you have five slots and like 30 more than deserving movies for that spot, especially in a good year like 2014.
4: Yeah, for sure. It was a really good year, and it seems like we say that every year, but we've been lucky enough to enjoy a lot of quality years. in recent memory in, in 2014 is no different. I mean, I look at this list, and I feel great about it i feel great about the next 20 movies that could have made the top 10 so speaks to the quality of the year to be sure and we're going to hear from some friends of ours from filmnards.com a little later on about their favorite films and performances and other moments from 2014 but before we get to that Corey, let's start with our number 10s okay here we go number 10
3: i Difficult choice because there were a number of movies that deserve this spot, but there can only be one number 10. What is Highlander? There can only be one, number 10. Can can only be one on. number 10 and one, you know, you know, at least nine others on this list. And I don't cheat. I don't do ties. So I just had to settle on my number 10, Under the Skin, from director Jonathan Glazer, which I suspect will show up on a number of critics' lists Much higher than number 10, but that's kind of where it fell for me, and uh, that speaks to the quality of this year, because this is a really strange, really absorbing movie. We've talked about it on the show, I'm pretty sure, but Under the Skin stars Scarlett Johansson as a mysterious, well, something, assuming the shape of a woman, prowling uh, Glasgow, Scotland, in a white van looking to pick up men. And what she does with these men is surreal, surreal, and frightening, and best left discovered by the viewer. Needless to say, Under the Skin, uh, if you haven't already heard about it, is a movie that takes a fresh, some would say alien look at... Human society and what it truly means to be a person walking, making one's day to day in a society that has so many unusual sights and customs. It photographs and presents humanity in a completely strange, bizarre, but super compelling way.
4: And there's really not much you can say is like it. That's true. And that makes me want to watch it again. I've only seen it the one time. Good pick. My number 10, Chef.
0: Oh. Is this boring to you? No, I like it. Yeah, well, I love it. Everything that's good that's happened to me in my life came because of that. I might not do everything great in my life. Okay, I'm not perfect. I'm not the best husband. And I'm sorry if I wasn't the best
4: father. But I'm good at this. And I want to share this with you. I want to teach you what I learned. I get to touch people's lives with what I do. And it keeps me going, and I love it. And I think if you give it a shot, you might love it too.
0: Yes, chef.
3: Now, should we have served that sandwich? No, chef. That's my son. Get back in there. We got some hungry people. He's ready to cook.
4: John Favreau's introspective comedy about food that's really more a deeply personal film about filmmaking and film criticism. John Favreau, he's been very candid about the process of making this movie and the catharsis it helped him reach as a storyteller, and he's worked at both levels, with massively budgeted studio tentpoles like Iron Man and Cowboys and Aliens, and modest indies like Made in this movie, which not only fetishizes food as well as any movie in recent years, but unlike so many films made in the last decade, it utilizes social media as a storytelling device in a wonderful commentary on how people fail to understand its purpose and abuse its power. I think so many movies have totally bungled the social media and cell phone culture that we live in today where you see these movies that show people in hallways or at events where something spontaneous is happening. And they make such a point to show somebody filming it with their cell phone or they say a line like, I'm going to tweet this and it just falls flat on its face. I think it happens organically in Chef. They use it in a way that develops their character and gives them a better understanding of how it works and how it works in this culture and can help you with your business and can help you with your personality and I found that really impressive. Unfortunately, even though more and more people understand how to use it and it's such a part of their daily lives, people fail to translate that in films and that's so sad to me and it's refreshing that a movie like Chef can do it. And more than anything with this movie, we get a a meaningful father-son story, and I think it's really nicely encapsulated in this really poignant moment when Favreau's Carl Casper takes a moment to watch this video project that his son Percy has made about their cross-country journey together. It's a really touching, really funny, and beautiful movie. It's a really sweet movie. It's a movie I enjoy quite a bit, and that's an interesting pick. That's a good pick,
3: and one that if uh, our listeners haven't caught up with it, it's available on Netflix Instant now, so uh, definitely check that out. I think we both enjoy that quite a bit. My number nine, I am a 28-year-old man. And my number nine pick is unabashedly the Lego movie released about this time last year in theaters actually a February release that needless to say remained in the forefront of my mind all year is one of the freshest most innovative and entertaining films of the whole year directors Phil Lord and Chris Miller who also in 2014 brought us 22 Jump Street which ain't bad itself bring what could have been a fairly cynical cash grab of a toy movie movie to the big screen with endless invention and absolutely inspired comedy there are so many jokes in this movie and it is a miracle that the majority of them land and land as hard as they do and that's due in no small part to a fantastic cast of voice actors bringing these jokes to life chris pratt morgan freeman elizabeth banks nick offerman allison brie liam neeson and of course will ferrell who spoiler alert doesn't just lend his voice to the movie that last act of the lego movie by the way i think is what makes it last in my memory to take that drastic of a left turn and transform what had to that point been a fun bright silly and inspired kids movie into something almost profound an almost profound comment on imagination and childhood and turn it into an ending that is legitimately quite moving that's not something i expected from this movie but boy did it deliver and um you know one would say that it would be the oscar front runner had it been nominated so that's a shame but it's not like they need the help you know this was a massive hit oh huge
4: uh, and we'll be seeing more lego movies oh
3: and and people will be watching this one for quite some time
4: yeah phil lord and christopher miller just hand them the keys to whatever shiny car you know you want to and you want to succeed, really, because I mean these guys are batting a thousand right now, yeah. and it seems like whatever they touch is really good, yep, so always look forward to what they're going to do and the Lego movie is no exception. My number nine dawn of the planet of the apes ah. ape politics man, more fascinating to me than human politics, and especially in some movies that consider themselves political anyway. This is one of the greatest political movies in recent memory that I can think of, and the character Caesar specifically, one of the great political figures in movies that I can recall. Just as important in addition to this franchise as Toby Kebbell, playing former lab ape turned Caesar's right-hand man, Koba, is director Matt Reeves. And I loved what Rupert Wyatt did with the first film, and I was sad to hear that he wouldn't be on board with the sequel. But Reeves brought the blockbuster back to Hollywood to me the same way that Guillermo del Toro did in Pacific Rim last year. I think he reached back and found that feeling that we got in blockbusters say from the 90s perhaps the 80s that we haven't really gotten these days and projects that have been so reliant on existing properties. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes happens to be a movie that relies on an existing property, but it feels so much more refreshing than any sequel or reboot or anything like it than any of its predecessors, even more so than the film that preceded it, which is also very good. But this movie is to me is just thoroughly entertaining, thematically rich. It's an adventure on about, again, war, politics, violence, trust and other elements of just basic human behavior. The first time I saw this, I had to take a second to realize how sucked in I was when two apes were sitting there having a conversation with sign language for part of five minutes. It's early in the film. And I was just so drawn in at the dialogue between these two animals who are obviously played by humans with this incredible technology that we're seeing with motion capture in Hollywood. Thanks, you know, again, primarily to Andy Serkis here as Caesar, but there's just brilliant visual storytelling happening here. Thanks to Reeves new vision for this franchise. And he'll be returning for the third film, which is really exciting, but Also because, again, of these performances from Andy Serkis, who's a miracle worker with this technology that seemed to be a really tired attempt to just shove special effects into movies at one point. He just totally redefined this technology and this motion capture as acting and performance and as something that can revitalize and bring new life to visual storytelling and and his equal in this is Toby Kebbell as Koba, one of the best characters of the year and in recent memory and a brilliant performance. I love this movie. The first time I saw it, I revisited it recently, liked it even more and it just kept me thinking about it. And if Hollywood can stick to these kinds of movies that have a lot of thought put into them by guys like Matt Reeves and the team behind him, then Hollywood's in good shape. You just wish that they would lean more heavily on stuff like this. Yeah, I
3: agree with everything you just said. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is one of those innumerable, honorable mentions for me. A great film that just didn't quite make my list, but I, I love it as well. Number eight film that I saw in April of last year at the Nashville Film Festival. And another film that haunted me, stuck with me. One that so few people have actually troubled themselves to see. But I know that one of our mutual friends thinks very highly of it as well. It's John Michael McDonough's Calvary, starring Brendan Gleeson as a good man, Catholic priest in a small Irish town that has begun to largely reject not only the Catholic Church and their moral authority, but the concept of religious faith and morality altogether. It's a veritable uh, murderer's row of amazing characters and Calvary is uh, set up essentially not as a who done it but who's going to do it as the opening scene which is just dynamite finds one of this priest's parishioners uh, we don't know who come to the confession booth and tell the priest that in one week's time he is going to kill him
2: i don't know what to say to you i have no answer for you i'm sorry What good would it do, anyway, if he were still alive? What'd be the point in killing the bastard? That'd be no news. There's no point in killing a bad priest, but killing a good one. That'd be a shock now. They wouldn't know what to make of that.
3: We follow the priest then during that week, which may be the last week of his life as he sort of, but not really, tries to find out who it is and set his affairs in order should the unthinkable happen. Along the way, a lot of unthinkable things happen. Misery befalls him personally. It's almost like an Irish retelling of the Book of Job in a lot of ways, but one with an absolutely brilliant moral message that comes across most powerfully, in the film's closing sequence. Just an astounding film with an excellent ensemble cast and a terrific lead performance from Brendan Gleeson.
4: Good pick, yeah, for sure. And McDonough, again, we thought that his brother obviously was the talented one in that family when he made In Bruges, and they were big fans of his, but when his brother made The Guard and now this movie Calvary, which when he made this, he he obviously made a huge statement as an artist and, and somebody to keep an eye on, so that's a good pick for sure. And Speaking of rejecting faith altogether, and in this case more of a cosmic world, I'm going with Woody Allen's Magic in the Moonlight. One of your top ten. For my number eight. Look, a great Woody Allen movie which this is will always get a spot on my top 10 list Corey and I found this French set romantic comedy to be exceptional just as much as 2013's Blue Jasmine in fact I think it holds up just as well with plenty of Woody Allen's other brilliant work specifically his 1980s romantic comedy a midsummer night sex comedy which deals with similar subject matter related to the real world versus the fantastic. And I think technically it's Allen in top form thanks to Darius Kanji's gorgeous cinematography, Sonia Grand's period costumes, and Anne Siebel's 1920s period design. It's a wonder that even the most miserable curmudgeon on earth such as yourself, Corey...
3: <laughs> I saw that coming.
4: ...could have even a shred of a negative experience watching this movie. This movie's a total delight to me. I just I wish you happiness, that's all. Thank you.
3: I'm glad you were delighted. Sure. Well, I will see your Darius Kanji cinematography in Magic in the Moonlight and raise you his true cinematic achievement in 2014, James Gray's film The Immigrant. You know, Bruno and me
0: used to be close, but then it changed... <laughs> Curious, how is it that you ended up working with him anyway? He brought me here They wanted to send me back, but he made it so I could stay My family here They don't want me so Wow I'm sorry about your family Listen, I've seen a lot of girls in your situation. And let me tell you, it does not matter what you do. My mother used to always tell me, God's eyes on every sparrow. You got a right to be happy, Eva. At yes, least that's what I think.
3: Talk about underseen films from the year that should not have been underseen. This is a great movie that was tremendously mistreated by its distributor, the Weinstein Company. Not even on DVD and Blu-ray yet, but hallelujah, they finally announced a date, April 7th, for the Blu-ray. I'll be there day one, waiting in, no doubt, a long line (laughs) of people who caught up with this on Netflix streaming and now need to own that precious hard copy. The Immigrant is just a good old-fashioned Hollywood melodrama with shades of classical filmmaking like uh, Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Godfather Part Two, It's just about the purest expression of the so-called woman's picture of the 1950s that we've seen since a film that plays directly off that, Todd Haynes' Far From Heaven. This follows a Polish immigrant, played by Marianne Cotillard, who arrives at Ellis Island in New York and is immediately suckered in by a charming, ne'er-do-well, conman pimp Played masterfully by Joaquin Phoenix, she is sucked into his web, trapped by him, forms something of a dalliance with his cousin, a magician, played by Jeremy Renner. I'll go ahead and say it, Marion Cotillard, in this film, gives my favorite performance of 2014. I can't say that it's the only favorite performance of hers from 2014 because we have not seen her Oscar-nominated work in Two Days, One Night. It hasn't been released in this state, but if she is anything close to being as good in that film as she is in The Immigrant, we're in for, well, just a masterclass in just those two performances. On top of that, James Gray's camera is magnificent. This is one of the most beautiful, expertly controlled films of 2014, masterfully emotional and calculated in all of the best ways culminating in just one knockout of a final moment that's right up there with the best final shots in cinematic history. So if you're
4: not sold on The Immigrant yet (laughs) trust me it's a good, good, good movie. Corey I think that line just got a little bit longer thanks to that emphatic endorsement. It should when you're tossing around cinematic history and all that. Have you seen it? No. Oh man. You gotta. No it sounds boring
3: oh you're crazy it's awesome it's so good yeah and nobody saw it and it didn't really get a theatrical release and it's just one of the great disappointments of the year that the critical fervor that sort of surrounded this for a time didn't translate to getting it more attention
4: well you're doing your part i'm
3: trying and it's finally about to come out on blu-ray so maybe people won't rent it because there's nowhere to rent movies anymore
4: there you go my number seven is life itself Which, upon seeing it, I really thought this might be my favorite movie of the year, as I was watching it in the Bama Theater in Tuscaloosa. Steve James owed Roger Ebert one after the legendary and late critic championed his documentary Hoop Dreams, calling it his favorite film, the best film of the 1990s in essentially giving Steve James a career in documentary filmmaking, or one beyond the one he probably dreamed anyway. Ebert's career meant that much and more to James and other filmmakers who you'd think could do without the musings of another film critic willing to share their opinions on an art form he doesn't directly contribute to, at least artistically. But this movie shows just how much Ebert contributed to the art form, Primarily to people like you and me, and people like us, who like to see and talk about movies a little more than others do, but also to the artists who really needed the feedback. As much as a triumph of the human spirit movie as you'd see in 2014, and that this is, Ebert totally rips apart your perception of work ethic and triumphing in the face of adversity, and with death just around the corner... He only gets stronger as a writer and as a man whose legacy is truly unmistakable. This movie, if you're a film fan, only celebrates movies and you should only feel good as you watch it and see what he contributed to the film conversation and what his legacy truly means to film criticism and also pop culture. That's a really good pick a really great documentary, another inexplicable snub from the Academy who I
3: suppose did not want to collectively show on masse that they cared for the opinions of a film critic. But, I mean, it is a really touching tribute, and the uh, testimonials from fairly important filmmakers in that film, people like Martin Scorsese, people like Werner Herzog, and even up-and-comers like Eva DuVernay, Ramin Barani, these are all just wonderful testimonials to how important... He was. And I know that, you know, when he passed away, we had to say something about it. We recorded a special episode about it because just a meaningful figure. And this is a just an excellent tribute to one of the greats.
4: Yeah, it sucked when he passed away, really. It was one of those celebrity deaths that you actually sort of feel in a weird way, especially somebody who helps bridge the gap between critic and artist and somebody whose voice truly mattered. It wasn't just a guy talking about movies and sharing some thoughtless opinion. Mm-hmm. Each of his reviews took so much effort or, or showed so much effort and thought behind what he thought of a movie other than it's just good or bad. Yep. He taught he, he taught us to think about movies and, and back up those thoughts With other thoughts and watching the movie again and and really watching Roger Ebert sort of slip away on film, you felt like you were losing him again. But the movie, while it's sad in parts, it really is a celebration of him and of film. And anybody who really cares about movies, I don't care if you're a film critic or if you're somebody who sees two movies a year. I think it's that good, and I think it, it makes you feel that good about movies and makes you want to watch them and think about them and talk about them even more than you already do, even if you do it a lot. Yeah, yeah. That's a good pick.
3: Seven through ten, no repeat picks on our list, by the way. So that's pretty interesting. I wonder if that holds up. <laughs> We're
4: getting there. Yeah, I bet I bet we are.
3: <laughs> Number six, a film from a first-time director with one absolutely dynamite central performance that you would normally say would be completely impossible to ignore, but the Academy found a way. I'm talking, of course, about Nightcrawler, Dan Gilroy's Debut features director, though, of course, he's been in the industry being one of those Gilroys for quite some time, featuring what might be debatably the best performance Jake Gyllenhaal has ever given. Certainly his finest lead performance to date. An absolutely terrifying transformative performance as Lou Bloom, a young sociopath who finds an industry well suited to his unique lack of Morality. That industry is uh, freelance video journalism on the streets of Los Angeles, prowling streets to look for graphic accidents or crime that he can videotape and sell to news stations. He manages to be horrifyingly quite adept at this, at first being in the right place at the right time, and later manipulating certain aspects of certain crimes to fit his own ends. This is an amazing dark comedy in addition to being a really excellent thriller, in addition to being a beautifully filmed piece of work from Robert Elswit, and in addition to being something of, as we've seen a lot of in 2014, honestly, an indictment of American media culture, if not capitalism itself.
4: Absolutely, and for all those reasons and these, it's also my number six of 2014. 14. You couldn't just wait until there was crossover there. Corey, there is some here now. Nightcrawler is my number six.
0: I've been seeing a great improvement in your overall focus and order following. Given complex problems, you're developing a real ability to find clear and simple solutions. I'm also aware of your increased enthusiasm. It's great to see your eyes light up when you're working on a new idea. I hope you'll be inspiring us with your innovative thinking for years to come. Thank you, man. I'm trying. Which is why I'm promoting you to executive vice president of video news. What am I now? You're an assistant. Does it come with a raise? Absolutely. How much? Pick a number. You pick a number. 100, 100, 100,
1: 70, seventy-five
0: dollars not it? Agreed. Wait. Uh, what about what about more? You know? Not now. We close the deal. I could have gotten more, couldn't I? Absolutely.
4: Yeah, you said it really well, and I'm all in on Dan Gilroy as oh, director. Yeah. I mean, we've been familiar with a handful of his scripts that we may or may not have noticed linked to his name over the years because a lot of them have been genre films mm-hmm. and in some forgettable titles with some exceptions, too. And he obviously is part of a pedigree of filmmakers and, and storytellers with his brother Tony directing a few movies that we're big fans of. But this guy is a special talent. ...behind the camera and I'm thrilled that he got an opportunity this year to tell this story specifically and he, he he's obviously a longtime screenwriter and for this to be his debut is truly unbelievable and he turns the typical American Dream story on its ear and lets a bad guy win by a lot and Gilroy never hesitates to say that his film's hero is also its villain and that he never saw this film as anything other than a success story for a guy like Lou Bloom, since he feels that people like Lou Bloom, who I fear truly exist in the real world, are the ones who are winning at life right now, which is a scary thought. And like you said, Jake Gyllenhaal is squarely on the same page as Gilroy, and he's spewing this scary self-help, It's so funny. Language that he's memorized to rationalize every situation he's in and to manipulate every person he encounters. Plenty of movies ask just how far you'll go to get what you want. But I think Gilroy's film also asks if you'll get out of the way of the guy who takes it just a few steps further. This movie is ferocious and crazy fun. It's something that I would recommend to anybody. Yep. It is awesome. So, Nightcrawler. Wholeheartedly agree, obviously. Definitely. Okay, well, that's the first half of our top fives. Yep. We're done. For now, we're going to hear from our friends at FilmNerds.com now, their favorite stuff from 2014.
0: This is Craig Hamilton in Nashville, Tennessee with my best of 2014 in film. My personal favorite supporting actress performance is Patricia Arquette in Boyhood. While Rosamund Pike left me wide awake at night for fear that she would come into my house and kill me is my favorite lead actress performance. Edward Norton in Birdman gave an excellent supporting performance. And my favorite lead actor performance of the year is Ralph Fiennes in the Grand Budapest Hotel. I believe Richard Linklater's directorial effort in Boyhood is the greatest of 2014. And I feel that my top five movies of the year are really strong. Nightcrawler is frightening. And Birdman is a lot of fun to watch and very well executed. Interstellar certainly evoked an emotional response. And Boyhood couldn't get out of my head days after watching it. But my favorite film of 2014 has to be The Grand Budapest Hotel. It's an at once hilarious and melancholy film executed with near perfection. But it's not without a moral. It definitely has a good message to it. Until 2015, this is Craig Hamilton. Goon out! What's up Aspect Radio, this is Matt Scalise. I'm sure
1: that So far in the show you have been treated to some very thoughtfully considered top 10 lists that a lot of effort was put into You're not going to get that from me at all I really don't feel like I can put together a a cohesive and carefully considered top 10 What I am going to do is just highlight some things from 2014 that really have stuck with me and Overall when I look back at the year, it was a great year for movies I wish I could have seen more but I'm really really happy with a lot of the stuff that I saw my number one movie of the year overall is a pretty clear choice and has been from early on in the year and it's Grand Budapest Hotel to me and I'm a big Wes Anderson fan admittedly but it represents not only kind of the best of Wes Anderson and kind of the ultimate version of what Wes Anderson is all about. It's beautifully designed, it's funny, it's endearing. But in a way, to me, it's also got something that a lot of his films in the past have lacked a little bit, which is really compelling, vibrant, well-developed characters. And I think it represents, in a way, a little bit of an evolution and a step forward for Wes Anderson in the best possible way. He, He still absolutely retains everything that you love about him. But Grand Budapest Hotel, to me, is a movie that is so iconic already. And I feel like it it sticks in my head. It's something that keeps coming back into my mind repeatedly throughout the year. Outside of that, to me, there were a few things I wanted to mention that surprised me, I guess, a little bit this year. One was, as a father of two, I see a lot more kids' movies these days, though we do try to be selective about it. There were three this year, all that came out of the Disney umbrella, that are really legitimately fantastic movies. And I'm sure they don't need my help promoting them, but to me... Big Hero 6 was a fantastic sort of kids action movie. It's a good way to kind of step your kids up into the superhero action genre. It's certainly intense, but it's not too intense for kids. And it's very funny and very moving as well. Another one on the list, The Lego Movie, which has sort of notably been snubbed at the Oscars this year. Just so funny and out there and bizarre. And I don't know anybody or any age group or demographic that I wouldn't recommend it to. It's just great. And it's hard to describe. You just have to see it. It's one of the most unique experiences of 2014. The other one I want to mention, Muppets Most Wanted. And before you roll your eyes, I know a lot of people were kind of skeptical about the redone Muppets. I feel like they got a lot of stuff right that they missed on in the Nick Stoller attempt to reboot the Muppets. It's a really fun, sort of wacky comedy musical caper, kind of in the old style of 80s Muppets movies. And it's a lot of fun. And Brett McKenzie's songwriting deserves to have been nominated for an Oscar. I also want to throw three quick things. I just feel like it was such a good year for big blockbuster action movies. Guardians of the Galaxy, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, along with Edge of Tomorrow. Those are actually all movies that are based on some other kind of source material, but they feel like such original movies. They put so much effort into surprising you and making you legitimately interested both in what's happening on the screen, which is like nothing you've ever seen in all three cases, and in the characters. They're all really well-written movies well-directed movies we got treated to some great big budget action stuff this year and it wasn't the same old lazy fare that we've been getting from hollywood studios so great year overall for 2014 thanks to the aspect radio guys for letting me ramble as long as i have enjoy the show thanks for listening
2: for aspect radio this is graham flanagan in new york 2014 was a great year for movies. I'm going to go down the list of a lot of movies that I saw in 2014 that I really loved. That really got me excited about movies that really made me want to go back and watch them again. Chef, How to Train Your Dragon 2, Magic in the Moonlight, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Foxcatcher, The Dead Saturday Trailer, Birdman, Whiplash, Guardians of the Galaxy, American Sniper, The Babadook, The Theory of Everything, Boyhood, Nightcrawler, Interstellar, A Most Violent Year, Force Majeure. Then there's the Grand Budapest Hotel, which I really, really liked, maybe even loved, but I'm just not sure how much. It's hard for me to make a list of movies from 2014 after not having seen so many notable releases. Some that come to mind are Mr. Turner, Big Hero 6, The Immigrant, and Snowpiercer. All of them are in my Netflix DVD queue. This is Graham Flanagan for Aspect Radio. Oh yeah, an inherent vice. Hey guys, it's Ben Stark
5: with Wonder Mill Films in Huntsville. Thanks for letting me weigh in with my top 10 movies of 2014. I did my initial list at the end of December, but here's my updated list, which has a few titles I recently caught up with and has been reordered after a bit of thought and repeat viewings. Number 10 is Nightcrawler, a slick and taut throwback to 70s cinema. Number 9 is Blue Ruin, a well-oiled southern suspense film. Number 8 is Captain America the Winter Soldier, an absolute delight for Marvel and Cap nerds with wonderful plot twists and uh, unrelenting action scenes. Number 7 is Interstellar, Chris Nolan's tactile and emotional space opera. Number six is Birdman, a funny, technically audacious look at identity and failure. Number five is The Babadook, one of the most impressive directorial debuts in years. Jennifer Kent's instant horror classic struck a nerve with me being a new parent back in November. Number four is Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, a pop art masterwork that responsibly uses its blockbuster status to say poignant things about our world. Plus, there's a bonobo with dueling Uzis. Number three is The Grand Budapest Hotel. Quite possibly the best comedy of the decade, Wes Anderson secures his spot as one of the world's most original and consistent filmmakers. Number two is How to Train Your Dragon 2, the stirring and exciting second chapter in one of the most surprisingly captivating film series in Hollywood. And uh, John Powell's score is the best score of 2014. My number one film of 2014 remains John Michael McDonough's Calvary, a dark and beautiful and counterintuitive examination of the Christian faith. It was a really strong year, and I have a number of honorable mentions that I wish could have made this list, but that I really liked. Ida, Inherent Vice, Why Don't You Play in Hell, Boyhood, Godzilla, Guardians of the Galaxy, They Came Together, John Wick, and 22 Jump Street. Thanks, guys. Great year. We are
4: back here on Aspect Radio. You just heard from our friends at FilmNerds.com, their favorite films, performances, and what have you from the year 2014. And we told you our first five films that we love so much from last year, which we feel was high in quality, and we're ready to give you the second half of that, our five through one picks here. And this time, Corey, I'll lead things off with my number five, and it is The Homesman. Whoa, you just saw this, right? Yes, and this was one of my most anticipated for the fall, too, and it took me a while to finally see it, and I was getting pessimistic about how I might feel about it since I had seen so many other great movies. I didn't know if it could penetrate an already strong list, but it did. It landed squarely in the middle of it. This is Tommy Lee Jones' second film after The Three Burials of Melchiatus Estrada, an Which excellent made my film. my 2005 top 10 list. This tells a story that few ever bothered to tell or bothered to tell over the years. Not that they would have anyway, because they simply didn't pay attention to what was around them in the brutal years of frontier living. Jones turns structure on its ear in telling the story of four women doing everything within their power to survive that time and place in the mid-1800s on the vast and empty path between Nebraska Territory and Iowa in a futile effort to find sanity dignity and happiness and it sounds bleak because it is it truly is this movie does not pull any punches but it's also exciting in the meantime and there are just these Hilarious sequences, too. These moments of dialogue between Jones and, and his lead actress here, Hilary Swank. He chooses to tell this story of women of that time and their struggles to survive. He does it through Hilary Swank's Mary B. Cuddy, a well-to-do single woman living off of the land in Nebraska. She volunteers to transport three insane women across the frontier, someone who not only knows it's the right thing to do, but also recognizes it as an opportunity to leave behind a life not nearly giving her as much as she puts into it. And it is a sad story, but it's a story that is not told nearly often enough. There's a moment at the very end of this movie where you think that the legacy of a woman like her <laughs> will live on <laughs> and and her story will be told and remembered. Nope. But we see that that, like so many others, is just not the case. No matter what lengths she goes to, Preserve someone else's life and sanity. So I found it incredibly poignant, moving, tragic. It's a great film.
3: Yeah, you know, it's a film I'm still wrestling with, to be honest. It's one that you certainly can't dismiss. But you're right when you say that Jones takes some liberties with structure, not only in the tone of his film, which is something I'm still trying to figure out, but also what happens after a certain turn about two thirds of the way through the movie that leaves the audience somewhat feeling gut-punched, set adrift. It's a film I would love to see again. It's a film that I think would reward a second viewing. It's not that I didn't like it, because I did. There's a lot to admire very obviously, such as the cinematography and such as Marco Beltrami's score, which I think is really terrific. But it's such a strange movie and it demands, I think, a second look. So I'll be checking that out when it comes out on Blu-ray, which I think is next week. I think so, and it'll be out on Redbox, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so that, that's, uh, that's going to be worth taking a look. My number five a film I'm surprised is this low, honestly, but a film I think that is, well, important to us as Alabama citizens, Ava DuVernay's Selma.
2: As long as I am unable to exercise my constitutional right to vote, I do not have command of my own life. I cannot determine my own destiny, What is determined for me, by people who would rather see me suffer than succeed. Those that have gone before us say, no more, no more, that means protest, that means march, that means disturb the peace, that means jail, that means risk, and that is hard. We will not wait any longer. Give us the vote.
0: That's right.
2: No more. They're not asking, we're demanding. Give us the vote.
3: I mean, we talked about it on the last show, so I don't know how much more I can say about it, but it is for American. Docudramas, something of a, a considerable achievement. One that does not cheapen, sensationalize, exploit the heroics of the civil rights movement, but depicts it squarely and honestly, despite the criticism of certain yokels who wanted to cause this movie trouble during award season. It is clear eyed and beautiful filmmaking, featuring a wonderful ensemble cast, featuring wonderful cinematography from Bradford Young, who's I also just saw in um, J.C. Chandor's The Most Violent Year. That dude's the new Gordon Willis, man. I mean... He's talented. It's unbelievable. Yeah. He's great. But I mean, everything about Selma is just superlative. It's just out of this world bonkers good. And it's as moving an experience that you could possibly have in a a cinema in 2014. Especially for guys who have grown up like we all have With this legacy, living so close to this and other places where some of the great events and and tragic events of the civil rights movement happened here in the state of Alabama. It's, despite all of that, a film that feels urgent and very much of the moment. It is a film of its time to be sure, and one that demands to be seen by the widest audience possible. You know, what else can you say?
4: I'm with you, man. I'm totally with you. And this is, again, it's one of my honorable mentions, too. Mm -hmm. It barely missed the list, but it's up there. Yeah, for sure. Now, I realized that, you know, when we were talking during our intro about making these top tens, when I said that I, I screwed up my list and, and and forgot a movie and had to include it suddenly, I've totally screwed up this conversation and forgotten that I've come up with the top 11 here without even realizing it, and I've forgotten <laughs> about a movie that I had on my list. So I'm going to go twice now okay? so that we stay in order. I'm not saying disregard the first film, Chef. It does fall out of my top 10, but yeah, it's, not <laughs> it's my number 11 to be sure. My number five now, my real number five here, is Richard Linklater's Boyhood. Uh Uh-oh. The would-be 12-year filmmaking experiment deserves more than any honorable mention ribbon for delivering on the gimmick that he promised more than a decade ago. And I keep asking myself, would Mason's story lose anything had he shot the same script in a normal period of time and cast different actors? It's just not that simple. As we've talked about before, and having revisited Boyhood recently, the whole experience needed the 12 years to gestate. You couldn't shoot the same script because it was an ever-changing thing unto itself. He kept writing as the people kept growing and as the story organically developed into something new each year that they filmed. So it's just an impossibility. Just like Mason, as much as it's about this young man's journey through time, it's really more about time's journey in a way. I mean, surrounding him and all of these other characters, we're watching. Grow and time is changing. The environments change over and over throughout this movie. Every environment surrounding Mason changes as much as he does, including his mother father, sister, and anybody he encounters. I think the beauty of this filmmaking process and the story that he tells Richard Linklater is that people change, but that they were able to remain constant and not let that change derail this so-called experiment. I think that unto itself is a huge victory, and there is no big game in this story. There's no dance, no fight, no car crash, no war he goes off to, no emotional breakdown, no kiss like some teenage romance. So what happens? What's the point of it all? And that's what I keep hearing people ask when they watch this movie and they're not very familiar with Linklater's work or what this movie's supposed to be. What happens? It all happens. Everything and nothing. Exactly. So this movie is a huge success. Oh yeah. That's my real number 5. My real number 4 is somebody I consider my favorite filmmaker today, and I saw his movie relatively recently. It came to Alabama, thankfully. It's Inherent Vice, from Paul Thomas Anderson.
0: Are you Shasta? Thinks he's hallucinating.
2: No, just a uh, new package, I
0: guess. I need your help, Doc.
2: Uh, you know, I have a, an office now. That's like a day job and everything.
0: And I looked at the phone book. I almost went over there. Then I thought, better for everyone if this looks like a secret rendezvous.
2: So, somebody keeping a close eye?
0: Just spent an hour on surface streets trying to make it look good.
4: Just what is Paul Thomas Anderson doing, adapting a wonderfully meandering, nonsensical, hippie detective novel written by the mysterious Thomas Pynchon. With his last three films all substantial departures for the man who made Boogie Nights in Magnolia, Anderson has become something entirely different than what we expected when he showed all the promise in the world before he even turned 30. All three offer glimmers of that same guy, part of it stylistically with this kinetic camera that never stops moving and then thematically with the deeper exploration of loneliness and family. But they all feel just a little heavier than those previous films, even Inherent Vice, which on the surface seems as loose as anything Anderson has ever touched. I've never read Pension, but I'm not sure what kind of leg up I would have, even if I had before seeing this batch. Looney Tunes outcast (laughs) with enough silly bits to make any stoner laugh at a moment's notice. But even more of that weight that you don't see coming until it wallops you in the chin and sober[s] you right up when you find yet another tale of loneliness and love that you regret. And I've still just seen this the one time, but it hasn't left me yet and it probably won't. So inherent vice number four. Well, it sounds like we're going to have some overlap after all. (laughs) my
3: number four breakout hit from an intimidatingly young director hit at sundance last year that translated of course into oscar success in one of the most profoundly unsettling but still crowd pleasing films of 2014 damien chazelle's whiplash featuring an absolutely go for broke Nuts!o so soon to be Oscar winning performance from <laughs> beloved character actor J.K. Simmons. He of J. Jonah Jameson fame and also of uh, popping up in a couple Coen Brothers movies here and there. Everybody knows him. He's on a ton of commercials. And now finally with Whiplash, he got a role that was good enough to sink his teeth into and run with and boy does he as the intimidating fletcher christian leader of a juilliard style conservatories preeminent jazz band who toxically takes a young student jazz drummer under his wing sort of and inspires and abuses this young man often in the same sentence, mostly abuses, but the abuse serves as an inspiration to the student played by Miles Teller, who keeps trying to overcome his sort of mentor's challenges. The thing about it is Whiplash does not present a clear-cut answer whether or not this is the worst teaching style in the world, and it's complete... Victory of a final scene may leave something of a sour taste in your mouth when you stop to consider precisely the implications. It's a great film. It is a propulsive film, edited brilliantly and performed magnificently, not only by Simmons, but by Teller, who I know you've often said has a punchable face. But for me, he's one of the finer young actors out there. And I, you know, we haven't had a chance to talk about this film. Did Teller turn you around on his face being punchable, or were you happy to see? like symbols hurled at his head by Simmons in this movie.
4: He definitely won this round, for sure. Yeah. Because Whiplash is another one that just barely, barely, barely missed my list. And Damien Chazelle is another one of these young filmmakers who is a force oh, to you, with. Great, for sure. great filmmaker. And Simmons, too. I mean, again, this is a character actor, longtime character actor who has earned his turn. I mean, this guy just hosted SNL for crying out loud, so bully for him, as yeah. Ron Swanson would say. Yeah. Yeah, I love Whiplash, and like you said, the editing is just unbelievable. It's one of those movies where you actually sit there and notice how good the editing is. Not in a super flashy way, but just all of, again, the kinetic energy that this movie has musically and just the ferocity that Simmons and, and Teller bring to the performances and, and, and again Damon Chazelle just has an unbelievable handle on this material. It's obviously deeply personal to him, somebody with a musical background mm-hmm. whose previous film, Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench, is another movie that has obviously a musical twinge or theme of some sort. You know, I haven't seen that. The guy loves jazz and has thrown it into two straight movies and whiplash is fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, good pick. Great movie. My number three totally caught me off guard. It's wild.
0: You get lonely
2: honestly, I think I'm lonelier in my real life than I am out here. As I miss my friends, of course, but it's not like I really have anybody waiting for me at home. How about you? Why are you here?
0: Um, I don't know. I just need to find something in myself, you know? I think the trail is good for that. I mean, look, this has the power to fill you up again if you let it.
2: My mother used to say something that drove me nuts. There's a sunrise and a sunset every day, and you can choose to be there for it. You can put yourself in the way of beauty.
0: My kind of woman. I
3: love Wild. Honorable mention. For me, but I'm so happy
4: because (laughs) this is one that I almost made my number 10 just for political reasons. Well, I don't know how political I'll get, but I bought the need for total isolation in this Mm -hmm. movie. I wanted the journey for this character, this person, Cheryl Strayed, and I wanted it for myself as I was watching it. We need isolation. We need solitude. And Jean-Marc Vallier made a good movie in 2013 with Dallas Buyers Club. He made a great movie in 2014. When he adapted Cheryl Strade's book about grief, the severity of loss, the lingering presence of regret, deconstructing the cliche of you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Anybody who's lost anybody, be it a friend or a family member, should see this film. Going into this, I didn't know much about Cheryl Strayed or the story other than what I thought would be a whiny white girl who needed to take a walk, go on a hike. You can judge the book by its cover. Yes, it's Reese Witherspoon, an actress not taken quite as seriously as we once did after election in Pleasantville. Yes, it's based on an enormously popular nonfiction book, but through perfectly edited flashbacks and stream of consciousness and the... Gorgeous backdrop of the Pacific Crest Trail and a great performance from Reese Witherspoon. Valle earns every last emotional moment in this movie. It absolutely pulverized me. It's magnificent. And
3: when I say political reasons for my own list, I want to bring up the fact that this film was expected to garner a nomination for Reese Witherspoon. Totally deserved. Got one for Laura Dern, supporting actress. Unexpected. Also quite deserved because she's very, very powerful in fairly limited screen time but you're going to look at me and tell me that this doesn't have one of the best adapted screenplays of the year, some of the best editing Mm -hmm. of the year, some of the best sound design of the year with that stream of consciousness sort of fading in and out of memory Mm -hmm. of music that reminds Cheryl Strayed of scenes from her past and sort of plays in her head as she makes this trek toward not only the terminus of her hike, but toward self-acceptance. There's what I feel is... An unspoken but clearly evident rule when it comes to awards recognition, when it comes to critical recognition, that men's stories, such as The Imitation Game, such as The Theory of Everything, such as American Sniper, matter. Women's stories, such as Wild, give them an acting nomination or two, but it's certainly not serious. Right. It's just some woman walking through the woods. Right. And I find that remarkably reductive, particularly when you consider, and I totally agree with you, Dallas Buyers Club was fine. But don't you dare tell me that it has anywhere close to the filmmaking craft of this film. No. It's not by a landslide. No, I don't know who the editor is. It's Valet.
4: Okay, he edited it. Under a a pseudonym. Yeah, so to me this has one of the best cinematic depictions of fleeting memories visually ever. It kind of reminded me of Spike Jonze's movie Her from last year. Scenes in that movie when, for instance... He's signing the divorce papers or watching his wife sign divorce papers. And in that moment, you just get this flicker of a positive Mm -hmm. memory that's riddled throughout this entire movie. And it just makes you feel everything she's going through. It's such a journey.
3: It is such a magnificent film. And one that, regardless of the fact that critics may not have validated it, that the Academy may not have validated it as much as it probably should have. I mean, you got to think this is going to be some sort of minor classic down the road because it is just among the very best of its type of film. Work for me, man. Oh, it's, it's great. I mean, you're spot on. It pulverized me, too. So this makes me better accept a movie that I am certain will be one of your top two now. <laughs> um, <laughs>
4: okay, what's your number three, Corey? My Go number ahead.
3: three is Richard Linklater's <laughs> Boyhood for reasons that you've already said. Okay. 12 years in the making, and you see every one of them on the screen. What's most remarkable is that it's cohesive in telling this story. And, you know, over the course of three hours, you feel the cumulative weight of a life lived and of a childhood that is, that is now gone. You know, this movie gets so much of its power from the way it was filmed and is such a special experiment and such a special story that, you know, what can you really say about it? It's an experience and it's experience to treasure. Linklater has never been one to back down from a filmmaking challenge, and he met it, and then some, with Boyhood. Just a great movie, and while Eller Coltrane, the young man at the center of the movie, may not necessarily be the most magnetic screen presence, you know, who among us is magnetic in those awkward teen years? Who among us does little but sort of react to the stimuli that we're presented with in those awkward teen years. The backbone of this film, as we said in our reviews, are are his parents, played by Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette in their Oscar-nominated roles. And if I were an Oscar voter, they'd... Well, certainly Arquette would win, but I'd I'd think real hard about Hawke, too, because that's an understated or rather less expressive performance from him that, that is nevertheless deeply emotional when you consider his growth and his viewpoint how it has changed from the beginning to the end of this movie it's just it's something else I mean what can you say about it that hasn't already been said by everybody this is clearly the most beloved film critically of 2014 and I mean of course it was going to be on our list both of
4: them my number two is Interstellar yep there it is and you can eat it there it is eat it raw Corey
0: we used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars now you just look down and worry about our place in the
2: dirt. Your daughter's generation will be the last to survive on Earth. Get out there and save the world.
0: When I'm up there, time's going to change for me. The time I get back, we might even be the same age. You have no idea when you're coming back.
2: I love you forever, you hear me? I love you forever, and I'm coming back.
0: Gravity on that planet will slow our clock compared to Earth's drastically. The plan does not work if the people on Earth are dead by the time we pull it off. I'm not gonna make it! Get back here now! What's this gonna cost us, Brad? Decades. Oh, you're not prepared for this. Hey, Dad. You once told me that when you came back, we might be the same age. Today's my birthday. I'm the age you were when you left. So it'd be a real good time for you to come back.
2: When you become a parent, one thing becomes really clear.
4: To to the same. We tend to overuse the term epic. Yes, we do. These days. In this instance. No, but Christopher Nolan has such a peerless grasp on sheer scale that a space epic seemed like the only place left for him to go, even though he's only made a handful of movies, many of which you and I love. As technically and in some ways thematically ambitious as people consider this for Nolan, it's hard not to expect him to take us places we've never been before. And I know that that was a criticism that you had of it, that it didn't take me any place I'd never been before the first time you saw it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've since revisited it. I have. While I think the 2001 comparisons are fair, they seem misguided and a bit too easy. Barring maybe some exposition and the bonkers climax, this is a wholly accessible movie boiled down to the simplicity of a love between a father and a daughter. In the distance... Between Cooper, played by Matthew McConaughey, and Murph, played by Mackenzie Foy at the time that I'm talking about, it feels greater when they're in the same room than when they're separated by literally galaxies. And delivering on his promise to return to her feels bigger than saving the world in that moment. Interstellar made me feel, man. And yes, Hans Zimmer's gargantuan score had every bit to do with it. Oh, but, it's so good. But so what? This is the movies, man. This is where I go for that feeling. I want to be simultaneously thrilled, sad, and delighted in one sitting. Christopher Nolan is the one guy who can and does deliver on that, more so than ever, in my opinion, in Interstellar.
3: I did revisit this, and I did appreciate aspects of it more the second time. I overlooked some of the nitpicking things. My whining about, it doesn't take us wherever Mm -hmm, we haven't mm -hmm. been before, whatever. (laughs) That feels wrong-headed to me after a second viewing. I will still say that I think the third act is flubbed. I think that he drops the ball with a lot of the major emotional beats that occur near the end of the movie. They just don't carry the weight that they would if a Steven Spielberg, say, were behind the camera. That's just because Nolan's not that kind of director. I mean, he's a great director at a whole lot of stuff. I'm totally 100%
4: in agreement with you there. But emotion? Corey... If you don't feel I emotional just, watching this movie, you I are just, that sad curmudgeon that I said you right, were let me, let me earlier just, in let me, the show. I, it's not that I don't feel emotion during this movie, but
3: there is a moment near the end of this film uh-huh. <laughs> where it's like a major league slugger comes up to a t-ball, takes a big swing, and just whiffs it. Just does not connect. okay. I'm trying to think of what moment you could be talking about. Well, it's the moment. Okay. Near the end of the film. Okay. You might even call it the end of the film. Oh, my gosh. And it does not work at all for oh, me. Man. Just does not. And that's not to sorry take you. away from the great work that McConaughey does in that scene and another extremely well-respected, great performer has in that scene. And there is just there is just nothing happening there.
4: Okay, this is about standing movies up from two thousand fourteen at the end of the year. Ones we love. Uh-huh. We're not here to. I'm, I'm not. Any, I'm just telling you that was my
3: that was my second reaction. I can't
4: wait for your number two.
3: My number two is Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice. Yeah so uh,
4: it sucks. <laughs> yeah yeah
3: yeah nice try now that I think about it nice try no you've already covered it so well a movie about as we said in boyhood everything and nothing considering that the uh, labyrinthine surfer noir plot spirals into so many different directions and so many blind alleys and so many complete dead ends that uh, it ultimately becomes irrelevant what this movie really does explore though is again that encroachment of sort of normal American life, what it means to be a member of the flatland, as Doc Sportello would put it here, versus living the sort of life, the unencumbered, uncapitalistic life that he would prefer. This is a grass is always greener movie, no pun intended, where you have all of these damaged, lonely characters that are Anderson's speciality looking at one another and envying what they have, whether it's Josh Brolin in just kind of an amazingly hilarious supporting role as the totally square square jawed cop longing a life where he can get a little freaky to reese witherspoon's assistant da to Catherine waterston's mysterious femme fatale to owen wilson's informant for everyone simultaneously somehow to joaquin phoenix's masterful lead performance as The private eye, Sportello, who would be better off being completely left alone were it not for a lost love that may remain lost. There's no hope of reuniting, just as there's no hope of, at the turn of the decade, as 1970 begins, sort of retaining that hippie lifestyle he had become so comfortable in. It's elegaic, this movie, in addition to being super hilarious and featuring just a cavalcade of amazingly funny supporting performances. You know, it'd be the movie of the year were it not for my number one. And I think
1: it's probably your number one. Who's this interesting old fellow? I inquired of Monsieur Jean. To my surprise, he was distinctly taken aback. Don't you know? He asked.
0: Don't you recognize him? He did look familiar. That's Mr. Mustafa himself. He arrived early this morning. This name will no doubt be
1: familiar to the more seasoned persons among you. Mr. Zero-Mustafa was, at one time, the richest man in Zubrovka.
0: And was still, indeed, the owner of the Grand Budapest. He often comes and stays a week or more. Three times a year at least, but never in the season. Monsieur Jean signaled to me, and I leaned closer. I'll tell you a secret. He takes only a single-bed sleeping room without a bath in the rear corner of the top floor. And it's smaller than the service elevator.
4: I couldn't fight it any longer. I wasn't really trying to fight it because of how early into the year we saw it. And now you think, well, something will top it. Nothing ever did. Yeah, it's hard to go wire to wire. Just ask any sports team, right? right? Just ask Alabama football. It pains me to say that, right? So, okay, it's tough. I'll take your Anderson. And I'll raise you another, Anderson, which I think you're going to be doing here too. Yes. My number one is The Grand Budapest Hotel. My number one is also The Grand Budapest Hotel. I'll never stop watching this movie. No. Whenever it's on cable, I watch it until the end. Whenever I find myself with nothing to do, the easy fix now is to pop this on from beginning or at any point in what feels like Wes Anderson's most complete film to date. On a recent show, I shared our friend Ben Stark's thoughts on this film. But more specifically, how we take Anderson for granted, this Texas-born writer-director who, in Stark's words, serves as an entire generation's introduction to film as a purely auteur-driven medium. That's true. He's often criticized for repeating himself, for making it, quote, to Wes Anderson time after time. Not to dwell on the negative here, but what would you have him do, honestly? A Bourne movie. Not to be Wes Anderson? Who should he be? Would you say the same about Stanley Kubrick or Woody Allen? Why do we love their films? Because of their unmistakable signature that breathes throughout their movies. And we find it so often in the work of others who deliberately or unconsciously let it creep into their work. Grand Budapest Hotel revels in it. And you could argue each film that Wes Anderson has made has been sort of building toward itself ever since Bottle Rocket. In his latest film... He uses every aesthetic trick in his book, but only to build towards this grander scheme of finding growth as a storyteller and delivering an emotional resonance that we probably have never seen in his work before. But somehow we forget Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums and Fantastic Mr. Fox even and how those made us feel. This movie is an adventure, a murder mystery, a period piece. It's revisionist history, aristocratic comedy, class warfare tale, and nostalgic love story all at once. It's as dense a playground as Anderson's ever created so far, and every time I watch it, I get totally lost in it. Absolutely. The thing is, people die, and monuments crumble. Worlds
3: are lost, and yet stories, storytelling, that's what endures. The Grand Budapest Hotel is is a testament to that, this interwoven narrative of a story within a story within a story that at the beginning of the film seems like an odd choice considering the film does not really go back to any of these other timelines very often it's like a russian nesting doll in its own way and yet by the end of the film this has such a profound resonance and such an emotional impact in the closing moments that it almost feels like sleight of hand magic how did wes anderson creep up on you like that as ostentatious of a filmmaker as he can be as overt as his style can be his emotion the sense of melancholy that he's brought to everything he's made invariably sneaks up on you wes anderson gets all of the credit for being a consummate visual stylist which he is but maybe he doesn't get enough credit for being able to so subtly break your heart as he has done so many times in, in so many films. You know, for a period of time in my life, Rushmore was my favorite film. It would take something really special to top it. And yet, you know, as I sit here, and, and this has so clearly been my favorite film of the year for so many months, since we saw it in March of, of 2014 or whenever, as we sit here, I mean, you know, what is better than this? This is such a magnificently crafted Beautiful movie, filled with beautiful performances, large and small, from people who've worked with Anderson before, like, of course, Bill Murray, like Jason Schwartzman, Owen Wilson, and then people who haven't, like one of the best performances of 2014, the central performance of Im Gustav, played by Ray Fiennes here, in a performance that is broad, vulgar, and yet sneakily sad. Just like this entire movie, it makes you laugh, and it makes you cry, as the old aphorism goes. That's what you want in a good movie. That's what the Grand Budapest Hotel gives you, and it always had been just the
4: movie of the year for me great way to end it man makes me want to watch it again I may just do that yeah so thanks everybody for listening we really appreciate it those are our top 10 and unfortunately 11 I let one slip in there films of 2014 you heard from our friends at filmnerds.com we appreciate Graham Flanagan Ben Stark Matt Scalici, and Craig Hamilton for contributing as always we thank our producer Andrew Richardson for his patience his knowledge and we, we look forward to the next year it was a great year and we appreciate uh, everybody listening and hearing us out us list our favorite films and later on with the Aspies the annual Aspies we will list our favorite performances and moments music and music and everything else about 2014 and that'll come very soon so find our stuff on itunes go to aspectradioshow.tumblr.com read cory's stuff on artsbham.com read mine on al.com and until next time i am ben flanagan
3: and i'm Corey Kraft. and for the record my number 11 of 2014 is david fincher's gone girl this is aspect radio thanks for listening
0: I would, if I could.